from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. In 2011, Professor Natasha Eskandar began a multi-year project to document labor practices on Qatari construction sites and to understand what had produced them. She spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on project sites, shadowing and interviewing workers on site and at their labor camps. She also interviewed their supervisors, their employers, the architects that designed the buildings and the government officials that commissioned them. In her new book, Does Skill Makes Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond, Professor Eskandar explores how migrants are recruited, trained, and used. The book is an in-depth look at Qatar's migrant workers and the place of a skill in the language of control and power. Natasha Eskandar is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, whose research investigates the way in which migrants shape the political and cultural landscapes of the spaces they occupy. Here is the first part of my interview with Professor Eskandar. And Natasha, Qatar has made a name for itself for its global reach. It is home to Al Jazeera Network, several prestigious American and European universities. It is the world's second biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas. And last but not least, it will be hosting World Cup soccer, which is scheduled to take place in mid-November. And this all has been made possible with oil and gas money, specifically gas, in the past 50 years or so. You describe Qatar as a version of future of glass and steel, which was a national project for the Qatari elites. But people who were building this vision were all immigrants and still are. The World Cup has been getting a lot of attention and that the massive construction, but you write the stadiums represented only a sliver of the total construction that took place in Qatar in the decades after the games were awarded in 2010. In fact, the eight soccer stadiums down from the 12 that were initially slated represent only $4 billion in construction spending out of projected of total $200 billion with some estimates of the total government spending reaching as high as 280 billion. Most of the construction in Kingdom was dedicated by master plan Qatar National Vision. And you write that the entire country was being reinvented and recreated. For people who are not familiar with this tiny place, which is a little bigger than Connecticut, Tell us more about Qatar and why this country chose this path of modernization and development. When did this construction boom happen? Thank you so much for that excellent question. Qatar is, uh, as you say, it's a small country appended to Saudi Arabia, which has made its own history fairly complicated. And it is a country that has always been at the center of global trade and exchange. Um, It has a a long history 
of being at the center of trade winds, global commodity production, just like the rest of the Gulf. And in fact, the model of development that you outline, this model of hyper-construction, hyper-modernist approach to development is a model that countries throughout the Gulf have adopted. And, and just to clarify what this model is, modernism is a particular approach to development. We tend to associate it with um, an aesthetics of modernism. Clean lines, functional buildings, a vision of the future embodied in kind of steel and glass and concrete. But what is different about modernism is that the idea behind urban modernist development in particular is that first you build the future and then you require the people to comply with that future. So Qatar has adopted this modernist understanding of development where it is building out the vision of itself for the future, a vision outlined in its national development plan and in its Qatar national vision 2030. And it is building a city that embodies it. What it does not have is people. And so in order to build out this vision, a global destination for sports and culture and the global elite, it is building the physical structures to support that. And most of the 280 billion have gone to that. But now what it lacks are the people. And Qatar is unusual in the Gulf because it has exceptionally high numbers of foreign workers. So 95% of the labor force in Qatar is foreign, fully 95%. The population statistics are a little bit harder to come mm. by, but most estimates place the ratio of Qataris to foreigners at about 85 to 90% foreigners to about 10% Qatar. The population is around 3 million. And the citizens are about 300,000, 330,000. That's right. That's right. It is a country built, or rather, Doha, because Qatar is really a city state, yeah. is a place built for global consumption in mm. a way. Right? It is a place to position Qatar as a global hub. Its economy does not depend on the activities it has built for. Its economy primarily depends on oil and gas, liquefied natural gas in particular. Qatar is, has is the third largest oil fields for natural gas. And as we adjust our fuel mix uh, with an eye toward climate change, the significance of Qatar as a global player in natural gas will only increase. It has functioning labor force, but it does not have a labor market. And the reason for that important distinction is that a labor market assumes that workers can choose their employment, that they can independently decide when to work for someone, when to leave a job, and when to change jobs. And that's where it becomes a market. Employers are selling jobs, workers are buying jobs, Workers are selling their labor, employers are buying their labor. In Qatar, it's different because for most of the decade leading up to the World Cup, and actually for much of the previous decades as well, workers were formally bonded to their employers, so they couldn't change jobs. 
And now Qatar has instituted a series of reforms uh, which seem very good on paper and practice. They're, they're not so consequential to allow workers to change jobs under limited circumstances. But what that means is that in practice, it's very difficult for workers to change jobs so that they are tied formally and informally to their employer. So there's no market. There's a labor force, but no market. We'll talk about that in detail. But there is a part in your book that I want to read, and it really pertains to what we're dealing today when it comes to climate crisis, and Qatar has been hit hard. You write, as a first step in the ambition reimagination of Doha, the bay was dredged and filled in, an army of lorries seconded from the oil industry transported and dumped quarried stone into the marshy bay. A deep water area was dredged to allow the approach of ships to the recently inaugurated port and the waste was used to fill in the area that would become the new district of Doha called Dahfina or the Buried by locals. And it was renamed later the West Bay. For seven years, the dredging and infilling of the bay noisily churned the coast that defined Doha and its livelihood for centuries, and the aggressive installation of basic structures in the dried out shallowed turned the area into a massive construction site. In less than a decade, the project increased Doha's footprint by a third. It more than doubled the length of the urban shoreline and turned its ragged edges into a crescent moon, sleek in its geometric precision. Alongside this unprecedented civil engineering project, the new plan called for capital investment in the ministry, buildings, port facilities, an airport, hospital, a luxury residential and diplomatic neighborhood on land reclaimed from the bay in the new West Bay section. What's been the environmental impact of all this construction? Because according to the Washington Post, over the past three decades, temperature increases in Qatar have been accelerating. That's because of the uneven nature of climate change as well as the surge in construction that drives local climate conditions around Doha, the capital. And Qatar is also extremely vulnerable to sea level rise. So construction does create something called a heat island effect. But before I, I address that, I want to just address that quote that you read, because I think it reflects how long this massive modernist reinvention of Qatar has taken place. So that example happened in the 70s, 70s and 80s. And Qatar has grown in big modernist bursts. Every time gas prices go up, there's a new development plan, importantly designed by foreign architectural firms, right? So the Bay was designed by an American firm. These big modernist plans that have continued and have resulted in artificial islands in the bay. So the Pearl Complex is a series of artificial islands. The Lucel Complex, where you will now see the biggest stadium where the final will be held, has an artificial island in the shape of a whirlpool. That is our shell. That is also one of these examples of massive engineering. So this idea that 
Doha, Qatar is a place where you can draw on the sand in your wildest imagination. There are the funds to make it happen. There are the imaginations that can back it. And then you import the workers to execute it. That has been a consistent plan. In terms of the climate change effects, you're right to point out the effect of construction on local climate. Certainly, construction and the laying down of concrete can disturb the environmental mechanisms that modulate heat in particular. But Qatar is warming in part because of an accident of geography, right? The way the planet is warming is different in different parts of the world. The Arctic is warming very quickly. So is the Gulf. It's warming in ways that suggest that it might be uninhabitable within just a few decades. So this is an accident of geography, although it's also a product of policy. Qatar is, and the Gulf as a whole, is extracting the very fuel source that is warming our planet. And also decades of massive construction. These are energy intensive projects and also water intensive projects. And Qatar does not have enough water, has always been in need of water. And I was reading that they have started this project with NASA to use a satellite mapping of the country in order to find aquifers to even dig deeper for the water that they don't have. So there are many factors in how Qatar is suffering because of climate change and also how it's causing the climate to get worse because of its extractive energy mix. Can you talk about what that coastline looked like? A lot of people relied on the sea for their livelihoods. You're right that the shore was uh, the base of the livelihoods for Qataris for many centuries. But in fact, it was also the nexus of global commodity chains. The pearl industry. The pearl industry, that's right. Qatar's banks were some of the richest for pearl cultivation in the world. Not only were they the most generative, the most abundant in the kinds of pearls they could yield, but they yielded pearls that were considered the most beautiful. And these were called oriental pearls. They were slightly pink and luminescent. They were considered the diamonds of their time. You know, as one of the early sheikhs in Qatar said, we are all slaves to one master, and that is the pearl. From, I would say, the 1820s through actually the Great Depression, you saw Qatar being the center of the Gulf's pearling industry. And it was a profoundly international trade in many of the ways that construction is today. You had traders from India, you had jewelers from Paris, you had traders from all around the world financing bundling, measuring, sorting, selling these pearls. And you had a local population that manned pearling dows. So these are the boats that would go out. And then you also had the importation of labor under conditions of slavery or indentured servitude. For a period in the 19, sorry, in the 1850s and 60s, the Gulf was 
a destination for the global slave trade, in particular from East Africa, because the labor demands to meet this kind of pearl craze, this global pearl craze, were so intense. Much after slavery had been outlawed in the rest of the world, it continued as a practice in the Gulf, in particular because of these labor demands for pearl harvesting, but also in neighboring estates, in neighboring countries for date cultivation, which was less prominent in Qatar. The horrible plight of workers in Qatar, and you interviewed a number of workers, has been blamed on the kafala system, which comes from the word kafil, sponsor. And this relates to the pearl industry, going back in history and understanding how the system has changed. Uh, you argue that the kafala system in Qatar, as well as the Gulf, more broadly, was the product of more than a century of global economic exchange. The Gulf had been the site of modern global commodity production, as you said, and extraction ever since the late 1880, beginning with pearls and date, followed, of course, by oil and gas exploitation after the Second World War and into the 21st century. So let's go back to the pearl industry. First of all, give us some basic facts about what kafala system is today. And then how does it connect to the history of a slavery in Qatar and more broadly in the Gulf region? The kafala system has had different iterations at different points in time. Where I'll start with is where the kafala system received a lot of global attention, which is when Qatar was awarded the 2022 World Cup hosting rights. They were awarded these rights in 2010 and invited the world to come see Qatar. Set Blatter, who was the, the head of FIFA at the time, said FIFA is going to new lands and the Qataris invited the world to come and see how they were building the cup and basically to come see how they operated. And what human rights organizations and the international press found was a litany of labor abuses. Everything from wage theft, sometimes months long, to unsafe practices on site, to abuse, to injury and death, to forced overtime, and then abysmal living conditions in the labor camps where workers were confined. And in their analysis, they attributed these labor violations to the kafela system. And at that time, the kafela system had several very restrictive components. The first was that workers were formally bound to their employer and they could not under any circumstances withhold their labor. In other words, They could not quit, they could not strike, they could not refuse to work, even if they weren't getting paid, even if they were suffering abuse. The second very important piece of the kafala system was that workers were unable to change jobs. They could not change jobs at all in Qatar. And if they left Qatar and wanted to come back to take a different job, they needed to get a letter of approval from their former employer, so really bonding them. The third important component is that workers could not leave the country without their employer's permission. You needed an exit visa to leave the country. And when I first started my research, 
one of the things that most astounded me was that at the airport in customs, the line to exit Qatar, the verification process of visas that would allow you to leave the country was much longer and much more stressful than the line to enter. This exit visa requirement had significant consequences for workers. For example, when Nepal suffered an earthquake in 2015, Mm -hmm. workers were not allowed to return home to care for their families or to bury their family members. Mm -hmm. So these, these were really consequential restrictions even beyond the labor conditions. And then finally, there were no protections, no minimum wage. The complaint system that existed was utterly inaccessible to workers and so on. Labor groups, human rights groups, the international press pointed to this system and said, this is tantamount to bonded labor. It is, in fact, bonded labor, and many compared it to slavery. And said, you know, you see these conditions, these labor violations because of this. But what was interesting to me is that in a country where 95% of the labor force is migrant, everyone was covered by this same system. So whether you were a doctor, a lawyer, a CEO, a consultant, an architect, an engineer, you were covered by the same system. And the labor abuses did not attach to all occupations. They were really concentrated amongst uh, workers in the construction industry and workers in other industries, but they were not uniformly distributed. So I thought, okay, something else must be going on. The other thing that I wanted to do in considering the kafela system, and this comes back to your, the second part of your question, is that I was really dissatisfied with some of the um, portrayals of the kafela system I came across. So there was really a portrayal of the kafela system, excuse me, as being culturally specific to the, culturally to the specific, Arab world. Yeah, That's right. And an expression of exploitative, even barbaric traits of the Arab world. And, you know, these cultural explanations, not only are they Orientalist, but they're very suspect to me. And racist, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. And I wanted to see how to develop a critique that didn't fall even accidentally into those patterns. And so I I started to do an excavation of the history of the Kafela system and where it came from and how it was produced and how it was defined. And what I found was that its roots really do date back to the turn of the 20th century during the height of the pearling industry, when international actors converged on Qatar to harvest and export pearls and used, relied on slave and indentured labor to do this. And so many of the features of the labor contract carried over. And one of the ways that it carried over was that when the British came in to exploit the oil in Qatar. They used many of the same workers employed or used because many of them were were enslaved, so were not really employed, used in the pearling industry to build the infrastructure for oil extraction. So they were in fact relying on indentured or slave labor to build the infrastructure for oil extraction, the British were. That was one stream. And the British, you know, in a very British sense, created a tiered employment structure where 
what they called native workers were at the very bottom and very British style and were confined to jobs that were considered unskilled. Then they had a middle tier of workers who were from the Indian subcontinent, which at this point in time was still part of the British empire. And then they had a top tier, of course, British nationals and Americans. And for those three tiers, there were very different working conditions. The bottom tier suffered the worst working and living conditions and were to a great extent enslaved. The middle tier of Indian workers had better protections in part because the British crown had instituted some regulations around indentured workers. And here is where the skill piece starts to come in. Because the British had this exploitative history of using workers from the Indian subcontinent Mm -hmm. throughout its empire, the British empire, there was a reaction. And as part of that reaction, there were a series of regulations put in regulating indentured labor and indentured uh, people who traveled under indentured contracts had to prove that they were skilled, right? And so this middle tier had to prove that they were skilled. Skilled basically meant non-agricultural. You could be making tea and you would be skilled under this category. But there was a distinction now between the workers who were unskilled, many of them working under conditions of slavery, and workers who were skilled who had protections. Natasha Eskandar is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and the author of Does a skill make us human? Migrant workers in 21st century Qatar and beyond. In her book, she details the history of Qatar's development and booming construction industry in the lead up to the 2022 World Cup by focusing on the experiences of migrant workers. She also investigates how a skill functions as a marker of social difference powerful enough to structure all aspects of social and economic life, including responses to climate change. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. We'll be back after a short break. Those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razazan, and I'm speaking with Natasha Eskandar. She's an associate professor 
at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and the author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. She writes, although Qatar's national development projects drove migration, the discourses that shaped the conditions that migrants faced in Qatar were as international as the array of companies operating there. In her book, Natasha Eskandar takes us through into Qatar's booming construction industry in the lead up to this year's World Cup and through her unprecedented look at the experience of migrant workers, she reveals that skills functions as a marker of social difference, powerful enough to structure all aspects of social and economic life, including responses to climate change. You write, there was a conflict between the king and the British of who should come in and how they should be categorized and where they should come from. That's right. The indentured servitude regulations uh, that the British put in were a convenient way to negotiate the impasse between the sheikh and the king over control over this process of extraction, who would benefit. The sheikh was worried, and the Qataris in general were worried, that the British would just appropriate Qatar as part of the empire. And so there was some tension around this, and ultimately the way it was decided was that only workers qualified as skilled could be brought from outside. And so you started to see this political distinction between skilled and unskilled. But how it all coalesced to become the kafela system was a series of policy amendments and policy negotiations between the British and the Qataris, and then eventually between the Qataris and the Qataris, right? And various industries. And over time, the components of this initial labor structure coalesced into what we now understand as the kafela system at the time the World Cup was awarded. And I keep saying at the time the World Cup was awarded because Qatar has made changes. And we'll talk about that um, soon, but I just want to stick with the oil industry and the British rule. You write that the number of recruits from Indian subcontinents who were imported by Petroleum Development Qatar, which was a subsidiary of Anglo-Persian oil company, today's BP, as skilled labor and used as builders, diggers, domestic and clerk expanded rapidly. In December 1947, the PDQ had 194 South Asian employees on its employment role. Within the year, the number grew to 552, and by 1950, the rank had almost doubled again to 841. Where did people primarily come from, the immigrants, during the oil boom in Qatar? extraction of oil and the construction of the infrastructure for the extraction of oil was as international an industry and as international a labor force as the extraction of pearls. The British, as you know, brought in workers from the Indian subcontinent, India, and what is today also Pakistan and Bangladesh. They brought in some workers from Iraq, some workers from Iran, although they preferred British subjects because British subjects were under British rule. And then the Qataris under the nationals category of unskilled workers brought in basically 
people from all over the Gulf. I mean, you know, here there's a little bit of the fact that the British couldn't distinguish one Arab from another. Yeah. So you had Bahrainis, you had Saudis, you had, you, you had Omanis, you had people from all over the Gulf claiming to be Qatari or being issued uh, Qatari nationality chits. And Palestinians after the 1948 Nakba. Yes, so after that, as Qatar started to industrialize and build out and create the infrastructure for education, for governance, for health, what you started to see then was the influx of Palestinians and Egyptians in particular. And so you started to see how Qatar was a fundamentally international space, so much so that in the 1960s, Qatar had to decide who was going to be Qatar, who would qualify, right? Because it was no longer clear. You had this thoroughly international mix. The idea of who was a national was absolutely not clear. And so Qatar started to institute some rules about who could qualify as being Qatari. And it had nothing to do with national identity. It really had to do with length of stay. So the rule was if you had arrived by this year, you could claim to be Qatari. But it was thoroughly international and Qatar remains thoroughly international. It is possibly the most cosmopolitan place on earth. It really is. And all of its aspects of life are thoroughly international. It is very interesting how they divided up the tasks and who occupies what position and what is considered skilled work and what is considered unskilled disposable labor. You write British and U.S. managers and engineers occupied the top layers of hierarchy. They were the foreign sahibs for whom the privilege of decent housing, fruit and vegetables, and many native workers caught consuming these could be, of course, punished. And the ability to negotiate their employment and career directly with the oil company were reserved. Indians, Pakistanis, Portuguese, Indians from Goa returned under carefully regulated and monitored labor contract as skilled workers. And they worked at clerks or company doctors tend to worker injuries, also cooks and drivers and household servants and laborers and construction workers erecting rigs and building infrastructures. You write many worked alongside local hires, loading and unloading iron, cement, and big rigs at the harbor. They were very precise in yeah, how in fact- they organize the labor force and how they can be used and abused. Yeah, so what was interesting to me and kind of looking at the archival research and looking at uh, some of the documentation of the labor practices under this period was that the tasks themselves were completed by people across these categories, in particular, the native workers and the workers from the Indian subcontinent. They often did many of the same tasks. But the distinction between unskilled and skilled was attached to their origin rather than what they actually did. So they were brought in for a particular task? No, they were brought in because the company needed workers. It needed workers desperately. There were not actually enough local workers, native workers, even supplemented by workers from throughout the region. So there just weren't enough workers available locally. 
But what was interesting to me is to see how much of the skill of native workers who were called unskilled was essential to oil and gas prospecting. In particular, the skills of workers who had been pearl divers. As you may know, much of Qatar's oil and gas, in particular, its gas is underneath the seafloor. And pearl divers had an expertise with the seafloor. They knew its currents, they knew its textures, they knew its behavior, they knew its terrain. It was indelible. It was something that they had gained through experience. And companies relied on this knowledge to begin to construct the infrastructure for underwater oil extraction. The same was also true of constructing infrastructure on land where people who had worked on land had a much more sophisticated understanding of the terrain, the behavior of the natural environment. All of these were essential for the construction of durable infrastructure for oil extraction. Formerly enslaved people also became citizens of Qatar in 1961 when an act was passed to grant citizenship to those who were residents in the country since 1930. Can you talk about that process and how that changed the kafala system? Slavery was outlawed in Qatar in the 1950s. It was a, a rather contentious process. It was, it was in some ways um, a huge boon to the elite who were slave owners. Uh, they received significant compensation from the government. But nevertheless, uh, this meant that the slaves were manumitted and became residents of Qatar. And in 1960, when the nationality law was passed, became Qataris. What this formalization of the distinction between national and non-national Qatari and foreigners in 1961, under this regulatory intervention, was that you now had the use of the Qatala system, the application of this regulatory structure to foreign workers. One of the outcomes was to say, Qataris will no longer be employed under these bonded labor systems, but we will maintain that structure since it has been core to our economy, but it will now apply to foreign workers. India's independence in 1947 also weakened the recruitment channel between the Gulf and the subcontinent. But the War of Palestine, of course, brought in more. What happened to the composition and makeup of migrant workers coming in after 1961? I mean, migrant workers continued to come from all over the world, even though the recruitment channel from the Indian subcontinent was weakened, it didn't disappear. As you noted at the top, Qatar is small, so it doesn't need a huge inflow to create a labor force that is mostly foreign. But there was quite a lot of immigration from the region, in particular Egypt and Palestine. And this was not entirely comfortable for the Qataris. This was a time of political foment in the region, the rise of pan-Arab nationalism, really powerful anti-colonial movements, a lot of political organizing, also around certain kinds of national socialist ideals, Gamal Abdel Nasser being at the, the forefront of these movements, the figure around which people organized. 
And so what you saw in the 1950s and 1960s in Qatar was a bubbling of political organizing and the organization in particular of strikes, strikes in the oil fields, but strikes in many other contexts. And it became very clear to the Qatari government that they wanted immigrants or migrant workers who were more manageable, who were not affiliated with these political movements. And they began to shift their strategies of recruitment to recruit, quote unquote, more peaceable immigrants, in particular from the Indian subcontinent. But everything changed drastically after the 1991 invasion of Kuwait, because there was an additional factor, and that was, quote unquote, security concerns. Qatar actively pursued the cleansing of its workforce or labor force from Arabs, be it Palestinians, Jordanians, because of how they kind of aligned themselves with Saddam Hussein during yeah, was, the invasion and after the invasion. Yeah, there's definitely a concern about workers, in particular Palestinian workers who had aligned themselves with Saddam. What this meant, though, actually ended up being a hardening of the kafana system. And it was when you saw the institution of the exit visa, because what you wanted to do was to make sure that the workers from the Indian subcontinent, that all Gulf economies were now competing for, would remain in Qatar while they were needed. So by instituting an exit visa, you allowed for the retention of the workers that you wanted to retain. And you made it possible to expel the workers that you didn't want to retain because you were no longer so dependent on the volition of workers to stay. You write that the war had massive implications for migrant workers in Kuwait and throughout the Gulf. By March 1991, an estimated 2 million workers had fled the region or been airlifted home by the countries of origin. A million more would follow in the summer and fall. The World Bank estimated the cost of conflict in lost remittances at $30 billion, about half a million of displaced workers were Asian, but the large majority were migrants from neighboring Arab countries, primarily Egypt and Jordan. Most were fleeing conflict, but many were driven out as traitors by the countries that had once welcomed them. And Palestinian population in Kuwait decamped completely during the war. Their presence made anthema in Kuwait, and then you also write about the Yemenis workers and workers from Bahrain. You write, during the conflict, Qatar's domestic intelligence services tightened their grip. The country experienced little internal protest against the war, but the government regarded its Arab population as a possible source of instability. A significant number of Palestinian residents, including prominent businessmen, and civil servants were expelled in 1991, and many Shias were placed under augmented surveillance as potential subversives. Arab workers had become less desirable in the region, and more Gulf countries turned to Asia for labor. That's right. So in turning to Asia for labor, one of the goals here was to maintain control of the workers that you were able to import, all Gulf countries started to turn toward Asia for workers. And so 
you can see the competition, right? And you, you wanted to ensure that the worker that you imported from India wouldn't leave and go to the UAE as Qatar. And so the way to do that was to institute a visa to leave the country. In other words, now you needed permission to leave the country, not just to enter. So how did Kafala system change in the process? As I said, the Kafala system adjusted over time. And this moment in the first Gulf War is a good illustration of that because that shows us how the regulatory structure adapts, was reformed in response to external pressures. So in order to hold on to workers, the government instituted an exit visa to hold on to the workers that were desirable, the Asian workers. And so this became an addition that was in response to geopolitical pressures that were threatening the viability of the labor force in Qatar. What were the working conditions and living conditions of these migrant workers coming predominantly from Asia in the 90s? The living conditions of workers in the 90s were probably not that different from living conditions in the 2010s. What was different was where they were housed. Many more of them were housed downtown, which was later rezoned and redeveloped for luxury residences and buildings. But for the most part, the living conditions would not have been that different than the living conditions were, living and working conditions were at the, when Qatar was awarded its World Cup hosting rights. One of the things that shapes working conditions in Qatar, of course, is when is it undergoing the construction boom? That rise and fall of construction activity is to a large extent dependent on oil prices. So uh, throughout the 1980s, oil prices were just very, very low. They tanked and they stayed low for almost a decade. And so you see very little kind of modernist planning, big construction booms during that period. I think that employers ceded ground when workers made a skill-based argument for why they wouldn't do certain things. But Mm. I think the main reason that Qatar has made the changes it has is that it cuts against its image of a global destination, right? Like it, it wants to position itself as kind of the center of culture and sports and It can't do that while it has very public and very graphic labor violations. It has responded to international pressure, to international PR. For Qatar, labor conditions are a PR problem. They're Mm. not a justice problem. But within the kafala system in the past, were there any mechanism put in place for the workers to address? No. Until 2010, the kafala system was, like I said, it was a composite of these two systems that blended during oil exploration. And then over time, the changes that were made to the kafala system were always to harden it, always to make it more restrictive, banning organizing by workers, banning the ability to leave at will, making it clear that the employer owned the labor, right? So all of these were more and more restrictive. And as the discussion of the Gulf War illustrated, the imposition of those restrictions were in response to external pressures, right? geopolitical pressures that made Qatar feel like it had to restrict to retain control of its workers. And to 
retain control of its workers with industrial discipline, no protests, no organizing, no organizing around working conditions, but also no organizing kind of anti-imperialist, pan-Arab identity politics movements, none of that. So it was always to restrict, restrict, restrict. And then in 2010, the pressures changed. And so Qatar changed in its response. And the pressures were external again. And they had to do with Qatar's ambition to position itself in a PR sense, in an image sense as this global destination, bumping up against the negative press it was receiving around labor conditions. And so it, it made changes in response. If you look at the conditions, and I'm sure that we'll get to this next week, if you look at the implications of the changes in practice, they are very, very marginal. Why did you decide to write a book about the plight of migrant workers in Qatar? There was an academic interest and a personal interest. The academic interest was, you know, there's very little written on the Gulf. Migration to the Gulf is huge. It represents about a quarter of global remittances, and yet there's very little written about it. If you look at the migration literature, there's nothing. It's also the photo negative of the typical migration story, right, where instead of having a fraction of the population or the labor force be immigrant here, everybody was an immigrant. So some of the things that are difficult to see in other contexts, you can see much more clearly. But, you know, more than that, I really wanted to, I wanted to create a portrait of a country in the region that was nuanced and that was fair and that tried to step out of Orientalist traps. And that came from a place of appreciation of the region. Before we end, would you read a passage from your book? The pearl harvesting industry was extremely labor intensive, even by the standards of the day. But it also depended on a high level of relational and embodied skill. The harvest of pearls relied on the relationship between the diver and hauler who worked together in pairs. The diver stripped down to a loincloth, skin oiled against the salt water, nostrils closed with horn pincers, fingers sheathed in leather finger stalls to protect against abrasions, dove down to the sea floor, tied to his hauler by a coir rope wrapped around his waist. His descent was aided by a stone a stone weight fitted to his foot with a loop of rope. On reaching the seafloor, the diver slipped his foot out of the loop and the hauler immediately yanked the weight back up to the dab. The diver groped the seafloor with one hand and foot, using the second foot to propel himself along the bed and the free hand to slice off open mouth oysters that snapped shut when the diver approached them and placed them in the basket hung around his neck. After 40 to 45 seconds, the diver yanked on the rope around his waist to signal to the hauler to pull him up to the surface. The hauler had to act quickly and negotiate his diver's ascent against the tug of water currents. This required an understanding of how the undertow pressure acted on the diver's body and how to negotiate those waves when hauling the diver up so as not to get pulled overboard in the rough waters. Haulers were often experienced divers who had aged out of diving 
but continued to coach their partners in their dives. The process went on from early morning until sunset. Diving teams could make 50 plunges a day in good weather, but no more than 10 on days when the currents were strong or when the waters were infested with sharks, stingrays, or jellyfish. You write that enslaved divers were often beaten with sticks or placed in shackles in an interpretation of a traditional curative procedure of scorching skin to purge the body of illness, many other enslaved workers were burned with hot iron on their faces and bodies to, quote, cure them of their unwillingness to dive. Natasha Iskandar is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, whose research investigates the way in which migrants shape the political and cultural landscapes of the spaces they occupy. She is the author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. Please join us next week for the second part of the conversation when we focus on working and living conditions of migrant workers in Qatar. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. installation from the Palestinian artist Jumana Manna is currently on display at UC Berkeley's Pacific Film Archive. In her new feature film, Foragers, Manna takes as her subject the traditions and power structures that shape foraging for akub, a thistle-like plant that tastes similar to artichoke, and za'atar, thyme, both wild edible plants that have been collected for generations in historic Palestine. Foraging akub and za'atar has been criminalized by the Israeli government under the guise of conservation efforts, resulting in heavy fines, trials, and prison sentences exclusively for Arabs who are caught gathering these plants. Filmed both before and during the pandemic, Manna's investigatory meditation combines fiction and documentary to trace the entangled cultural and governmental significance of this cultural tradition and its legislation. Following the plant from the wild to the kitchen, from the chases between local foragers by the Israeli nature authorities to the foragers' defense courtrooms, this work is concerned with what is made extinct and what gets to live on. 
It particularly illustrates the importance of these food sources as substances and cultural symbols for people whose political economy, rights, and land has been under attack for nearly a century. Framed within our current moment of particular ecological and economic precarity, Forager examines human and non-human resistance in the face of intended erasure and alienation from the land that sustained them. You can watch this documentary until March 6 at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. For more information, please visit bampfa.org. That's bampfa.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.